0: We all have mental health and it's just as important as physical health. No, really,
1: I'm fine shares real stories and experiences, but we aren't an experts and this podcast is not an alternative to getting official medical advice. If your mental or emotional state quickly dips or you're worried about someone you know, help and support
0: is out there. Talk to your GP or call us Samaritans on 0800 585858 5858. 5858. For advice on how to help a friend or
1: loved one, visit Rethink.org. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of No, Really I'm Fine. How are you today, Michael?
2: I'm good, thank you. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm just... um... I had a bit of a crazy weekend. I was working all weekend and I'm working, in the minute I'm working 4am shifts, which is great. And then after one of my 4am shifts on Saturday, I decided to go dye my hair silver. Yeah, it um- looks great by the way, it looks cool. <laughs> I've never done anything like that in my life. I've never dyed my hair before or anything and I just went crazy. It was actually a little bit of influence from Scarlett Curtis, who we had on a few weeks ago, mm-hmm. and she was talking in the episode about how she dyed her hair in dare various different parts of her life when she was sort of marking a change in her life. And mm-hmm. like I've I've had a big change in my life this year. So to actually just go where right, I'm gonna go and Mm-hmm. Goes crazy with my hair. There was one moment where it was like yellow, and it was like that horrible yellow. Uh, and I yeah. was like, and I was like, oh my goodness, is it going to be like this forever? But no, it was, it was fine. It was <laughs> <laughs> so this week, um, it's a very special episode for you, and mm-hmm. um, our guest is Hope Virgo. Tell me about her.
1: Yeah, so Hope is someone I followed on Twitter for for a long time now, mainly because. I found her a useful source of support, really, in the mental health community. There's there's tons of people who are very supportive on Twitter in the mental health community. But Hope in particular, I've found it's quite easy for me to talk to. Um, so I regularly message her. But I wanted her on because what she's doing is is great really in terms of campaigning for more support around eating disorders and how that links in with mental health.
2: She's done a, a campaign to the government which is about dropping the scales is that right? Yeah
1: it's called Dump the Scales and it's received over 90,000 signatures which is quite a lot <laughs> um, and it's it's basically um, she's calling on the government to review the eating disorder guidance um, delivered by clinicians and that's mainly from her personal experience um, because she has battled with anorexia for quite some time and she, she overcame that in, in a sense, um, short term but she started to relapse and she started to recognise the signs again mentally that she was going down that path so she went to get help and the clinician basically told her that she wasn't thin enough to get help Um, which is is quite shocking when you're uh, being told that and you know you've had anorexia before so you know she talks about that experience and she also talks about you know her early life and the trauma she suffered as a sexual abuse victim and how that led to her developing anorexia So there's a lot of, there's a lot of talk about, about eating disorders, and so there should be, but it's also interesting how, you know, something that we can often refer to as a physical, I don't like to use the word disease, Mm. but a physical thing is very much a, a, a mental, mental thing in terms of, you know, how you see your body and how you view your body and how other people view your body.
2: And we should just say that um, if you are suffering from any sort of if the anything that we talk about in this episode becomes a trigger for someone listening or anything on those lines, we should say we are not um, mental health experts. We're not, um, you know, we're not experts in any of those fields. We're just telling stories. So hopefully that, and I, I'm sure you'll agree with this, that I'm I'm sure um, hopes episode today will inspire others to to sort of do some positive change
1: yeah yeah no definitely and you know i could have talked to hope for hours um unfortunately we don't have hours and hours of (laughs) podcast feeds but um you know fortunately hope's book stand tall little girl is out next week on amazon and people can buy that if they want to know more about hope and and you know more about her life in more detail but for now just enjoy listening I am joined by the lovely Hope Virgo and I am very inspired by Hope. I follow her on Twitter. Uh, I think she's an amazing person. I think she's been through a lot and come out the other side to really inspire a lot of people I have a mental health community on Twitter and they are a group of people who I turn to when I'm feeling down or when I need that little bit of motivation and and Hope is one of them. So that's what I want to start off by um, telling you about Hope and introducing you to her all. But for those of you who don't know Hope, she is a mental health advocate. She is a mental health campaigner. She is the author of Stand Tall Girl And um, she has recently, or last year, should I say, started a petition called Dump the Scales. And that is to, you know, sort of get more support for those who have battled or are battling eating disorders. So, hope, welcome. Thank you for for joining us today. And to continue with our theme, we start off by asking our guests, are you really fine? So, are you really fine today?
0: I am, actually. Um, Yeah, I'm in a really good mood. I feel... Yeah, really on top of the world, excited about my future, um, which is, yeah, it's amazing actually. I've had a really rough kind of year and a really tough eight, kind of eight, nine weeks. And over the last two weeks, I've really started to feel back to my old self again like really happy a lot of the time um and I guess my worry is which I'm trying not to be worried about is how long it's going to last so just trying to be more in the moment and be like yeah it's amazing to feel this good let's not panic about when it will stop
1: yeah because as soon as you start worrying about the future that's when you're like
0: yeah (laughs) worrying about the moment in time right then (laughs) so talk to me then about your petition because
1: it's gained a lot of signatures hasn't it at the moment so talk to me about that
0: It's been, yeah, it's been really exciting, actually. So we've got, I think, just over 94,000. So we're trying to get to that 100,000. But basically, what happened was, was back in 2016, I relapsed with my anorexia. And when I relapsed, I knew what was happening. And I had this kind of like four-month period where I was really struggling with food and exercise, but also getting the feelings of validation back from living with the illness again and at the same time there was this part of my brain that was like stop doing this like you don't want to do this you've made so much progress like you need to sort this out so I was quite frustrated at myself for relapsing and um so I ended up going to the hospital with my mum and after getting a referral and we basically talked them through my whole history everything and It took them probably, yeah, like an hour we were there. And they asked me about my therapy I'd had before. They asked me about my past. They asked me about my hospital admissions. They asked me why I thought I was relapsing, all of this stuff. And then they weighed me. And despite ticking every single box to access therapy, because I wasn't underweight, there was no support available for me. And I left that appointment and felt like this completely fake anorexic person. With anorexia, it's so competitive and you compete with everyone around you. But then with yourself, you're competing on this whole other level. And it's like being told you're not thin enough. And it's basically like being told you're not good at being anorexic. And I left that appointment and had this four week period where I didn't really know what to do with myself. I felt really suicidal. A lot of the time I was obsessively exercising, really, really unhappy, felt completely isolated. And I didn't actually know who to talk to. I ended up going on antidepressants um, as a way to try and get me back on track. But after getting through kind of my relapse and starting to be in a much better place again and from starting to talk about my own experiences a little bit more, I realised that actually this isn't something that just happened to me, but it's something that happens to so many people every single day across the country. And it's ridiculous. It's this complete injustice that people with eating disorders can only get support when they are ridiculously underweight so I've been working on my Dump the Scales campaign for the last year to really try and change this. Um, and it has been really exciting. I think like we've taken it to Downing Street, we've met with ministers, and we've got a huge amount of interest from like the media, but also from the public too. And I think I want the message to go wider than just people with eating disorders and about actually getting everyone to realise that you don't have to be stick thin to have an eating disorder. You can literally be any size, any shape, and it can still impact you.
1: Mm. And I suppose when you went to that appointment it's draining in itself going having to go over everything again.
0: I no, it is and you feel really guilty for reaching out for support anyway because you're like maybe I'm not good at this, maybe people won't believe me and making yourself go and get that support and that I think is the most heartbreaking thing about all of it is actually I get people who contact me all the time who have tried to get that support and are trying so hard to recover but they just can't do it on their own and when that support is not there for them and they've tried and tried, the only thing that they feel able to do is to lose more weight and to hit that crisis point so they can get some support from a hospital which is just
1: shocking you you know you think oh I need to lose more weight to be able to get support when you need support to help you stop losing weight yeah it's ridiculous (laughs) it's just yeah bizarre so talk to me then if you don't mind hope about about your story and and where your anorexia stemmed from and, and when it started
0: um so I developed anorexia when I was about 13 years old um I think for me, the reason I developed it was because I had quite a dysfunctional family. I hated feeling emotions and I was also sexually abused for eight, nine months or so. And when that finished, I was just left with all of these distressing images. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to process all of those feelings. And the anorexia completely switched everything off like that. And it gave me this kind of sense of satisfaction and value that I wasn't getting from anywhere else. And I absolutely loved it. And I think that's the really scary thing with it is you start to starve yourself and you do feel better straight away. So it turns into this vicious cycle I think as well for me, I didn't realise there was anything wrong with me. So I had this voice in my head telling me what to do all the time. And over kind of the next four years, I managed to keep it secret from every single person around me. I distracted quite a lot. I rebelled quite a lot. And I managed to find ways to kind of turn every family mealtime into arguments or to be out all the time, just so that I could avoid all of those situations around food. When I was about 16, my school did eventually get in touch with my mum. I went to my GP and then after a couple of months got referred to the Children's Adolescent Mental Health Services. I had to go there every single Tuesday for an appointment and every single week I somehow managed to trick the system but I remember at the time just being so unhappy like Mm. I'd get home from these appointments and just feel so isolated and I hated everyone around me I didn't understand what was going on but I didn't really know any better Mm. and most evenings I remember like I'd get into bed and be like I'm so unhappy let's just start eating tomorrow But then the next morning I'd get up and just be back on it, kind of doing exactly what that anorexic part of my brain was telling me to do. Mm. And whilst I thought I was incomplete and utter control, I'd completely lost every aspect of it completely. And then eventually, six months after I'd been at CAMS as an outpatient... I was admitted to a mental health hospital where I then spent the next year trying to recover. So learning about food, exercise and learning to also just talk about my emotions and be okay talking about things.
1: Mm. Did it affect your school and when you were growing up then?
0: Um, Not, it was a bit of a weird one. So no, not really. It was so... I was very I was very hard working at school and I didn't let the anorexia get in the way of that. When I got really unwell, I had to drop out of school, but I ended up doing my A-levels anyway um, and taking them in hospital. So I basically just taught myself the syllabus with a little bit of help from some of the teachers who would come in and see me. Um, but I think that's the thing with anorexia is it's quite, you're quite, yeah, I guess you're quite a driven person with it. Mm. So it doesn't tend to impact your schooling what it does do is take over your life completely though in other ways so quite often I'd be sitting in lessons and I'd be thinking about food and calories and exercise or thinking about when I could next skip a meal or how I'd skipped dinner that night or whatever it might be and in that sense it becomes more I guess more encompassing on you the other thing with schooling that it definitely did was impacted my friendships so I still was quite outgoing I went out a lot was very sociable but I wasn't able to go to restaurants with my friends or wasn't able to do as many activities I wanted to because it might have impacted with my gym routine or a meal or whatever it might have been. And I think that's quite often what we don't what people don't understand with eating disorders is we think that it's just someone who's on a diet being a little bit vain, but actually it does take over every single aspect of your life to one degree or another.
1: Mm. It's almost like a form of OCD, isn't it? It's like that constant thought of when's my next meal going to be or what when, yeah. when, when's my next you know exercise routine going to be. No
0: exactly. And I think even when you're in recovery you're then like worried about the meal and the run up to it so like an hour before the lunch and then an hour after lunch at least you'll be panicking about the food and what they're going to have or whatever and I think in that sense as well it does take over and I think when you are in recovery that's when people start to withdraw a little bit more because they find it really difficult to express themselves especially when they're starting to put on weight.
1: Mm. And do you find you still have that routine drilled into you even though you sort of you are recovering from it?
0: Um, so I definitely did for the first kind of three years. So straight after I came out of hospital, um, I went to university and for my first year at uni, I lived my life with calories at certain amounts of time in the day, just because I knew that if I did that, then I'd still feel in control and be able to manage it. Over the last year or so, I've definitely become more relaxed about it. So I challenge myself every day now to try and push my recovery, um, And I think for me, that's been a massive game changer in the whole thing and trying to learn to listen to my body a bit more. The thing for me is I don't get hungry. So I don't, I've lost that kind of intuitive eating Mm. that we're born with. And I think actually a lot of people have probably today lost that because of uh, the way that we're brought up and society's messages around dieting and certain foods and whatever.
1: And constantly being on the go.
0: Yeah, and Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think, so. for me, I have to make sure I have my three meals a day and I have to make sure I snack throughout the day but I can have like a bigger lunch and be okay with that and then have a smaller snack in the afternoon or whatever. But I think at the moment, I'm always going to have to keep that structure in place.
1: Mm. And do you think now, um, nowadays, there is more of a defined link between mental health and an e- eating disorder in terms of more people recognise the two and how they affect and how they you know work together?
0: I think over the last year, definitely, I think there's still not as much understanding around it and I see that from the work I do in hospitals but also in schools the fact that we only pick up on eating disorders when people are underway or when they've lost that weight or put on the weight and when you go into hospital they have to treat that primary issue which is the food but actually if they started to treat the person as a whole person they'd have a much more kind of long-term recovery within that. I think for me I've really noticed it actually over the last couple of months so um i as you had got sexually abused when i was younger and when i went into hospital we didn't do a huge amount of trauma work and it meant that I just kind of got refed in hospital, learned how to live my life kind of managing but I was never really kind of thriving at life if that makes sense and over the last eight weeks I've had intensive trauma therapy and actually it's been amazing having that as an issue tackled Mm. without having to think about the food side of things and I think what we should be doing more of is actually when we get that person to a healthy weight we need to start looking at the root causes much more than just giving them the coping mechanisms to know what they need to have throughout the day because you can't you can't live a normal life if you're just eating those meals at a set time and not being able to challenge yourself or go out and about so did your
1: um anorexia stem from being sexually abused then
0: that's what they said they think i think it was i think it was a number of reasons and i think that was probably the biggest one and probably the thing that triggered it off I think what I've realised after that happened was there's been other points in my life, like when I relapsed, for example, when... My grandma passed away and because I learned that it was a good coping mechanism with the sexual abuse, you go back into that coping mechanism. The comfort sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. But I, I have kind of through research and from talking to people, I think a lot of people who have an eating disorder have, have been through some kind of trauma and it's a way to protect yourself, I guess, from everyone around you and protect yourself from your own feelings too.
1: How do you perceive yourself then? How, how do you, do you know that, that classic... Um, when people talk about you look in the mirror and you see a skinny person, is that sort of a stereotype of people with anorexia or is that actually what what happens or or Mm. what happened to you? Yeah,
0: it's exactly what happens. And I think that's what's so frustrating is I know that when I look in the mirror... I can't see myself how everyone else else does and I find it so frustrating. I feel like now it's okay because when I have those days and my body kind of image is really really bad or I know my brain's really distorted I can kind of remind myself of it and actually this morning I was in the gym with my I've got a personal trainer to help with my exercise um, and to make sure I'm not exercising obsessively and Doing it for the right reasons. And it was so funny because we were talking about how my body shape has changed over the last kind of couple of years. And definitely over the summer, since I've relaxed around food, I probably have put on a bit of weight and that's okay. Mm. But actually, it was really funny talking to her about it because we both had this realization, halfway through the conversation, that actually my brain still really is distorted in how I view myself. And I think if we accept that, it kind of makes it easier to do. I think also for me, something that really helped me to accept that my brain was distorted in that body image thing was um, after a couple of days in hospital, um, I did this activity. So they got me to draw how I imagined myself on this massive piece of brown paper. And they traced around the outside of me. And the images were so, so different mm. that actually it was just ridiculous. Like I, At that point, I accepted that I had an eating disorder, that my brain distorts things. And I think it's things like that that actually we need to be trying to do raise more awareness around and actually getting people to think a bit more carefully about the kind of things they're saying to people when they lose weight and things and whether actually someone's even aware that they're doing it. And I think
1: that sort of thought process is common with a lot of mental illnesses as well. For example, with me, with my anxiety, I see myself as a failure all the time, no matter how successful I might be in my work or how many times you know your parents or your friends say that you're proud of you it's still for me that's a constant battle to, to be like you know I, I don't see myself as that so I do understand from from that perspective how how that can can happen in terms of um the petition where where do you want it to go where where do you want what's the ultimate goal
0: um the ultimate goal I think is to get is to get a commitment from the Prime Minister and from the ministers to actually take some leadership and take responsibility and make this happen. The frustrating thing at the moment is obviously there's so much political turmoil going on and mental health gets pushed further and further down the agenda when this happens, not just eating disorders but all mental health issues and it's just so so frustrating and so what I want to happen is I want them to start taking this really seriously and what I'm doing locally, um, so I, in southwest London, so the hospital that turned me away from services, I'm now working with on a programme to actually try and get local support better in the across the boroughs that that trust um, currently covers. And the plan is if that goes well, then we could then roll that out across the country. I think the main issue at the moment is that the guidance is there clinically, but it's just not being implemented in the right way. And it's partly because people don't have an understanding of eating disorders mm. Um, and I think that's the worst thing about the probably the petition and the whole system is when you go when you go to the department of health and or to NHS England they always say oh the guidance is there and I'm like yeah I know the guidance is there but it's just not working and I hear stories constantly like I said about that
1: Mm. and in terms of let's go to social media then for for a moment I know you, you use social media a lot how has your relationship been with social media because you know, sometimes on Instagram um, you see all these beautiful ladies and, you know, beautiful men showing off the, off the bodies and sometimes that can have a bad effect on your mental health. And then with Twitter, some people find it um, a great space to to vent and, and, and to express their thoughts, but then others, you know, are subject to abuse and, and things like that. What What's your sort of take on it and how has it been for you over the years?
0: Um, So I find Twitter quite supportive most of the time. Um, and I get a lot like you a lot of mental health support through Twitter and through people who I follow but also people who just comment on things and I think it can be really really powerful in that sense I've been quite lucky because the people that have trolled me on Twitter have tended to have a very small following and I've kind of been able to justify their actions because of that reason and which probably sounds ridiculous but I think you can convince yourself that it's okay what they're doing I think for me with Instagram I find that a more challenging challenging medium I guess because Mm. and mainly because of people posting photos of their lives constantly because of the comparisons and it's so easy to compare even now with stories and things you can just see what everyone else is up to and because I work for myself I even get worried about things like whether I've got enough work or what I'm doing or whether my petition's doing as well as it could be and things like that and I think quite often we feel the need to constantly be sharing exactly what we're doing I probably don't manage it in the best way if I'm honest so I am responsible in the stuff I look at online and I make sure that I follow accounts that make me feel better but I think sometimes you I think I I know I do it I will look at accounts when I'm having a bad day And I'll scroll through their pictures and I'll then feel worse about myself. Yeah, I do that. Why do you do that It's ridiculous, isn't it? You're like, I know this is going to make me feel really (laughs) miserable anyway. It's so, yeah. And it's so funny. And like, even when I go into schools, I'm like, children, I'm like, do you guys do this? And they're like, yeah, we do. it. And I'm like, but why does everyone do it? But everyone does. It's just bizarre. Yeah. Because then you spend about two hours afterwards, not on your phone, just worrying about... Yeah, and then you can't even get any work done because you're feeling no. rubbish about yourself anyway. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's uh. so counterproductive. Mm. Um, but I think in that sense, we like there is, yeah, I think it, we need to each find a way to challenge ourselves with Instagram and other social media. But I do think that it can be really positive. And I think quite often there's so much backlash given to social media when actually the backlash should be on things like the lack of funding and the lack of understanding and all of that extra stuff that we just don't really talk about as much.
1: Mm. And Do a lot of people come to you on social media for advice?
0: Yeah, quite a few actually. Um, So if I'm honest, back when I first started campaigning about three years ago, I used to be really good at going back to everyone. But then I got too invested in everyone. um, And so now I'm trying to take a bit of a step back from it and refer people on more, which is something that I find really difficult to do because I like to fix people. And I think as well, like I just really care. And particularly when someone's got a mental health problem, and particularly when it's an eating disorder, I just want them to know like how rubbish it is with an eating disorder and how you can recover. So I'm trying to get better at just taking a bit more space for myself as well. And I think with that as well, making stricter guidelines with myself to not be kind of responding to Twitter messages on the weekend or the evenings and just being a bit more conscious about that sort of stuff.
1: Try and have, like, sort of social media breaks
0: and Yeah, like which I'm still not great at. No, I'm not. Especially <laughs> when you're a journalist you just, yeah. you just need to be on it all. <laughs> it's very... I know, I worry that I'm going to miss something. And then I'm like, why does it matter if I miss something? Yeah, like, like, it won't be the end of the world. Yeah, it's just classic <laughs> FOMO. Just, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous. Yes. <laughs> I think that everyone should agree a day that we all just don't use social media every week yeah. or something or once a month. And then no one would feel that. FOMO yeah talk to me a bit about your book then um so my book is basically this a more detailed story of my life um so it talks a lot about my childhood things that came up when I was younger um I talk a little bit in it about therapy that I had when I was nine as that whole kind of problems that I had around expressing emotion um, I then talk yeah, about my time in hospital and what that was like for me in the first part of my book my mum writes a couple of the chapters to offer kind of some parental insight into it I think quite often for parents they can feel so so alone in this situation and feel like their child's much worse than everyone else's or they feel too embarrassed to talk about things but in my book it literally just all comes out the fact that I'd throw bread at my dad if I didn't <laughs> want to eat it or I used to like obsessively bake loads and loads of cakes and then like not eat any of them and the kitchen was a mess and it's stuff that when I first saw it being put in the book by my mum I was like oh this is so embarrassing but actually now I'm like actually this is what it's really really like um and then my second the second edition of the book comes out on the 28th of October and In that one I talk a lot more about my campaigning work, I talk a lot more about where I'm at now but I also talk about the last year of my life which reflects a lot on the sexual abuse stuff and actually the fact that eight weeks ago I was at complete and utter rock bottom again, still kind of publicly and in my work life really managing professionally but in my personal life I was really really struggling and I've written very honestly about actually what that's like because I think as someone who campaigns in this space, it's really, really difficult sometimes to be really honest because you're trying so hard to be strong for everyone around you and to put on this brave face to show how amazing recovery is. But the reality is, it's actually recovery is really, really difficult at times. And even though I campaign on mental health, I still have to manage my own wellbeing. So trying to be, I think, more honest about all of that sort of stuff at the moment, definitely.
1: I think sometimes as well, people can forget that you have A mental health problem or that's where it stemmed from for you you're not just this sort of although you'd like to be you know you're not just this you know community advocate that's
0: yeah you, you need time as well and it's so refreshing actually when people realize that this morning I got a text of someone who um, I kind of interact with on Twitter a little bit and then found out she lives really near me. So we're going to go for a coffee. But she messaged me and she was like, really, she was such a lovely message. But at the end of it, it was like, um, you don't always have to be really strong. Like if you're not okay, like tell me. And I thought that was just so lovely because you have people who really get it. Mm. And I think it is a really, I think it's really important because we can't campaign on mental health if we've got poor mental health for a period of time.
1: Mm-hmm. Talk to me then about the last nine weeks of 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 your life, if you want to. Yeah, you know, no, that's what,
0: fine. What- um so last September I decided to report the sexual abuse case. Um so the sexual abuse happened to when I was about 13. And I thought that I was in a really strong place to do it, and I kind of convinced myself that it was all gonna be fine, um, and everything. Um also my mum was quite keen for me to do it. I think I think she kind of blames herself for a lot of what happened with it, if I'm honest. Um, and so we both agreed that I was going to do it. So back in September, I did it. And what followed was kind of eight months of loads of interviews with the police. Um, how they do it when you report a sexual abuse or a rape case quite often is they film you so that the films can then be used in court so you don't have to go to court. But it was quite intense going and getting all of these films done Um My family also had to get involved. They went through all my diaries, kind of all of my past kind of got churned up, which because I'd boxed it away for so long, it was really, really difficult actually coming out. And I didn't realise at the time when I agreed to do it, the impact that it would have on me, but also the impact it would have on those around me. And so over the last year, like my guard just shot right up to protect myself and also to try and protect those people around me. And It got to the point where I remember my last police interview um just kind of mid middle of May and um I got back from the police station and I got so so angry at my partner because I didn't know what to do I blamed him for everything because I couldn't blame the police I felt like they were getting really annoyed at me um and I was just so frustrated by the whole thing and I think quite often people don't understand what they're doing and I didn't understand my emotions and my feelings and my behaviors and he definitely didn't understand what was going on so for my whole kind of, I guess everyone in my personal life, it was really, really difficult. But then how I coped with it was to just throw myself into my campaigning and to work all the time as a way to manage it. And I was like, because I'm still and because I'm not obsessively exercising, surely everything's totally fine. But actually all of those warning signs were kind of there, but just in different places. Um, so yeah, nine weeks ago, I realized that I was really not in a good place with things and it was quite funny funny is not the right word but it was quite funny yeah I was like it's quite funny (laughs) like um all my friends had been texting me being like you really need to get some support you need to slow down you're not well and I was like no I'm fine like I'm fine and then it was on this Tuesday morning um I was sitting I'd been at a meeting um by Oxford Street and in the meeting, I'd like just completely zoned out and like was just not there at all. And the, I remember the man asked me a question and I just like made up some kind of answer. And then I left. I got on the tube to go to King's Cross and I just burst into tears. Mm. And I was like, what is the matter with me? And um, got to King's Cross um, and I was meeting up with a friend who helps with all my social media stuff. But I ended up telling her, I was like, I'm really not OK at the moment she was like I know you're not and so on that Tuesday morning I then booked a GP appointment I then spent a long time researching therapists because I felt like I had to do it all in that day yeah because otherwise it might get to the next day and I might feel okay again
1: and yeah 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 I was like
0: I have to sort this today um so I took that whole day to sort things and luckily I found a really good therapist um who's actually based in Norwich so I travel up to Norwich once or twice a week at the moment to go and see her kind of depending on work and things. And it has just been absolutely amazing. I think for me, I never really knew the power of therapy. Like I did so much in hospital and I got where people really liked it, but I just wasn't something for me because I find it really difficult to be really honest with people. Ironically, because I've shared my stories so publicly, but I find it so difficult to just give everything to someone else. Um, but with this lady, I can just do it. And Over the last nine weeks, I've learned so much about myself, but also about the way that I act and the way that the police case had this massive impact on me. But also it's I've also seen a shift in things like my eating. I'm so much more relaxed around food than I ever have been. I'm not stressed constantly about my body image and I feel much more kind of body confident and things like that. And actually all of the stuff with my past and all of that trauma it had this kind of weird hold over me mm. that I probably just was never really aware of and so it's been it's been yeah it's been a really tough nine weeks and having to kind of relive a lot of the stuff that I went through um particularly when I've kept it secret for so long but actually now I've started to do it I feel like I guess that's why this morning I'm like I feel really excited about the future now because mm. I feel like actually I can start living my life without having let to let someone else in my past completely control me
1: yeah it's like as soon as you've opened those floodgates if you like yeah that door to sort of allow yourself to go through that pain and stress for a while it's
0: sort of you're
1: now on the road to recovery because you've sort of dealt dealt with
0: yeah no exactly and I think that's what's been really interesting is seeing that yeah I guess seeing that change in myself and also people commenting on it around me Mm. and for me having people comment on that has been so motivating because in the past it was always people commenting on the fact that I'd put on weight or lost weight or a whole weight thing Whereas now it's people actually commenting on what I'm like in meetings and whether I look happy in photos and things like that. And I'm actually like, that is what I want. Like, I don't want people to be looking at my weight. I want them to see what I'm like in my face and my behaviours and things like that. Yeah, um, of course. But I think the probably the, yeah, well, something that I have realised, I think, Um which is something that I need to work out what I want to do on it and I haven't really thought about it much yet but actually is looking at that whole issue with sexual abuse and rape which at the moment is in the media all the time and it's ridiculous and it's so frustrating and I think I want to work out whether I can start to do some more campaigning but also to whether I can actually support people who've been through that Mm -hmm. who might have developed an eating disorder or another mental health problem to actually kind of encourage them to start talking about it and getting a bit more openness around it.
1: Mm. Do you think a lot of people are scared to talk about it?
0: Yeah I think there is like Mm. I think I've had people a lot of people contact me on Twitter actually since I've started talking about it who've been through similar things and A lot of them are just too scared to report to the police or they don't see the point, which I think that's the most frustrating thing is they don't see the point in it. And like, yes, I know a lot of cases are getting dropped at the moment and there's not enough evidence, particularly if it happened a long time ago. But actually, the fact that we are starting to report more things like this, it's really important. Um, And I think I think we all have I guess we all kind of have a role to play in that actually is to start challenging the justice system, the NHS, and actually look at these like, national bodies and seeing how they're working together, but actually whether they're working in the right way and working up to date with things as well.
1: Thanks for checking out the show. I hope you join us on the journey as we explore mental health. You can follow us on Twitter at I'mFinePodcast,
2: where we'll have loads more information and some sneak peeks for future episodes.